Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on in the book of Hebrews, and we'll be finishing up chapter 7. We'll be starting in verse 23, and as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Oh, most heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this opportunity that we are given to uh, study your word, to uh, dwell upon your precepts that you have given to us so freely through the instrument of the Bible and through teachers like Mark who work diligently to study and give us more insight and in-depth understanding of your word so that we can apply it to our lives. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And welcome, Mark. Well, it's good to be back with everyone. We've been looking at the seventh chapter of the letter to the Hebrews, and our writer is comparing the priesthood of Melchizedek, which he clearly believes represents the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to the priesthood of Aaron. And he's been making several arguments that the priesthood of Melchizedek and thus the priesthood of Christ is far superior. And he's been pointing out the flaws of the Levitical priesthood uh, as we go through chapter 7. Let's pick up our reading at verse 23 and read verses 23 through 25, please. And there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. Great. Thank you very much. Now here our writer is comparing the transitory nature of the Aaronic priesthood to the permanent nature of the Melchizedek priesthood of Christ. The high priests of ancient Israel died physically, at different ages, and there was constant turnover uh, in the office through their history. The historian Josephus counted 86 high priests from Aaron until the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And so each time one of these high priests died, the office had to be transferred. And so our writer is making the case that as this transition would occur, the ability of the high priest to intercede on behalf of the people would be interrupted 
over and over again. And he contrasts this to the promise back in the 110th Psalm, which he keeps coming back to, that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And with emphasis on the forever. With Christ, there is no transition. And, of course, with Melchizedek, God intentionally did not record his predecessor or his successor, so that in the written record, he became a priest forever and served as a type of Christ who is our high priest forever. And so that's the basic argument uh, that he's made. Oh, I, I said 86. Uh, the actual number is 83 high priests that Josephus records. And so the priesthood of Christ is perpetual, not transitory. His saving power is available without end, without any limitation tied to his eternal life. This brings to mind Paul's writing in the 8th chapter of Romans where he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. And so Paul also wrote about this eternal perpetual intercession that Christ makes for his chosen people. We have other passages in the Gospels that tie into this same concept. The most notable one is in the 17th chapter of John, which we looked at a couple of years ago. But this whole chapter of the Gospel of John is known as Christ's high priestly prayer. And it is really an expansion of the idea of Christ as high priest. And so, if one might wish to understand what the Hebrews writer is talking about, reviewing the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John would be a great way to get some expansion on the roles that Christ plays as high priest in the new age in which we live now, the kingdom age. There's a lot of bad writing on the nature of Christ's intercession, which would contradict the intent of our writer. The writer stresses over and over that Christ did his work once and for all, in contrast to the Levitical priests who had to slaughter innocent animals every day, and on feast days they had to slaughter millions of innocent animals so much so that there was a seven-foot diameter conduit to carry the blood from the altar on the Temple Mount down to the brook Kidron, which eventually makes its way to the Dead Sea, appropriately enough. So the Levitical priests, the descendants of Aaron, had to constantly be making sacrifice on behalf of the people. But Christ is not standing up repeating some mantra over and over again, worried about every little sin that we commit. He's not a pagan-type priest, 
who has to uh, do anything like that. According to this writer, he made one sacrifice once and for all, for all of our sins. And now he is an enthroned priest king of the kingdom of God. His life at the right hand of the Father is as one who has been brought back from the dead, which we see in the fifth chapter of Revelation where he's pictured as a lamb once slain who exercises dominion over the earth from his throne in the spiritual realm. His perfect once-for-all-time self-offering is completely acceptable and completely effective for all of our sins. He serves in the office forever and ever and brings with that service salvation for his people, which is also eternal and absolute in nature. All right, any thoughts or comments here on down through verse 25? All right, if not, then let's read uh, verses 26 through 28, please. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Great, thank you very much. So we see here again yet another reference to the 110th Psalm, which may be the favorite passage of the Bible of our writer here. And I, I'm just going to reread it uh, right now out of the Septuagint so we get some idea of what our writer has in mind and what he keeps referring back to. It's seven verses. A Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will send out a rod of power for you out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. With you is dominion in the day of your power, in the splendors of your saints. I have begotten you from the womb before the morning. The Lord swore and he will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at your right hand has dashed in pieces kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill up the number of corpses. He shall crush the heads of many on the earth. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. And so this very short psalm is really a picture of a ruling king exercising absolute dominion and crushing his enemies. Even that idea at the end, he shall drink of the brook in the way, that's talking about an army on the march 
and this is an army that is not afraid of being ambushed uh, on the way, although it's really hard to get that meaning from the straight English translation. But when you look cross-reverence the idiom, that's what it's referring to. But so this is a king and a judge, and right in the middle of this psalm about David's Lord here, he says that the Lord swore and won't change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is a priest-king here, and that this psalm exists is obviously extremely crucial because our writer keeps coming back to it over and over again to demonstrate that the old priesthood is about to pass away, the old law is about to pass away, they were inferior and were only intended to last for a definite period of time. They were definitely not supposed to last forever. All right, so as he begins here, he talks about the utter suitability of Jesus Christ to be our high priest. He's a human being, as our writers already pointed out. That was one of the qualifications to be a high priest. He was appointed by God, which was another requirement for a high priest, and he is one who has endured temptation just as all of us do, and yet kept himself free from guile and defilement by perfect obedience to the law of Moses. He was the only human being ever to completely keep the law of Moses. And so he was personally acquainted with just how painful it was and how impossible it was for an ordinary human being to keep. And because he was able to suffer and maintain perfect obedience in suffering, which just keeping the law is suffering, but he suffered, of course, even more than that at the hands of the leaders of his own people. He is now exalted into the heavenly realm uh, and, again, serves as the perfect intermediaries, so to speak, between God and man because he is both God and man. He can relate to God perfectly. He can relate to man perfectly. And the idea is repeated here in verse 27 that he doesn't have to make offering for sin over and over again. In this case, specifically the writer is referring to the need of the high priest to first offer a sacrifice for his own sins before he can offer the sacrifices for the sins of the people. He had no sins, so he never had to offer sacrifice for his own sin. And then he doesn't have to offer daily sacrifice for the sins of the people because he did that once and for all when he offered up himself. The high priest on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, had to offer the first sacrifice for his own sin before he could begin the day's ritual. There's also a more obscure part of the Law of Moses that talks about 
if a priest had a sin of some sort in his life that he was to offer up a sacrifice for his own sin first before he could begin his function there in the temple. And so he may have been thinking of that as well. But the concept is certainly there throughout the law of Moses. And the sinfulness of the old high priest descended from Aaron is certainly recorded for us throughout the Old Testament and in the history books like Josephus as well. And in verse 28, he kind of wraps this all up by saying that the law appoints as high priest men who are subject to frailty, who cannot obey the law of Moses perfectly, in other words. But the sworn word which was spoken after the law, and he's referring to the 110th Psalm here. This was spoken in the time of David, which was hundreds of years after the law was given at Mount Sinai. And so God promised to appoint one who has been made perfect forever. And so I think he's done a very good job in comparing the two here. He is writing to people who are steeped in the culture of the Levitical priesthood. It's part of their everyday life. It's their paradigm. Even if they live hundreds or thousands of miles from Palestine, they send offerings and they travel down for the feast days whenever they can. And so this is very central. And of course, the entire audience of this letter would have heard the segments of the Law of Moses read every Saturday when they gathered at their synagogue for Shabbat or Sabbath with the readings from the Law and the Prophets and the Psalms. The argument was likely even stronger for the original audience in the first century than it is for us who have never tried to live under the law of Moses. The new priesthood is better, number one, because the new priest is Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, free from all guile and defilement. And again, he's making the point that the when the new priesthood came, it set aside the old priesthood and the law of Moses, and that they're existing at the same time uh, as this writer is penning this letter, but he's made it very clear that the old age <laughs> is ready to pass away. It is on the very brink of passing away as he writes this letter, and historically we know that that did indeed come to happen just as he predicted in this letter. All right, anything else on Chapter 7? Any comments, uh, ideas, or questions? I've got a question. Mark, why is it that God did not put in the hearts of David, for instance, an understanding of Jesus the peacemaker, uh, Jesus the humble, Jesus the meek, Jesus of the Beatitudes, the Jesus we know, why did he have it all wrong? Why in the 110th Psalm do we hear about the, his coming produces a valley full of corpses and the crushing the enemies? How come David never got it? We've talked about this question over and over again. 
in the last several years. And the piece that God is more concerned with is the uh, peace between man and God. Although certainly we are all familiar that we should build up the kingdom of Christ. And, well, Leo Tolstoy's book, I think, just says it so well, (laughs) that the kingdoms of men exist to, uh, you know, make war and support the bankers. So we should be opposed to that, certainly. But the time of David and all that, the, the utter destruction of Amalek, the physical punishment of Ammon and Edom, and the absolute destruction of the Canaanite tribes who occupied the land are true, and Jesus Christ was there and was part of that. I mean, there's no question about that unless we cut and paste our Bibles. But I think those physical acts of destruction were symbolic of God's jealousy for his chosen people and for his bride, really, Israel. They rule with God. Because you see, all those destructions were of people who abused or threatened to corrupt God's wife, Israel. And nothing gets him worked up any more than that. Our battle is spiritual today, but in in the old age, it was a physical battle for God to, to demonstrate his protection and his jealousy for his bride and his people. So I don't think David missed it at all. I mean, the Philistines came in and made all of Israel slaves and confiscated all their weapons and uh, corrupted them with uh, idolatry and pagan worship. And God had no, uh, he had no leniency for them, and they were eventually wiped out by the uh, Babylonians, the same people that he used to wipe out his own people, Israel. So, I mean, I don't think David missed it. Otherwise, you've got to say that the four-fifths of the Bible is uh, is corrupt and is not really the Word of God. And you have to deny the Christology of John that says that everything about God that, we've, that we can interact with as humans was Jesus Christ, and that is Jehovah of the Old Testament. Yeah, I'm trying not to, I'm not trying to generalize on uh, the... Uh truthfulness of four-fifths of the Bible. I'm just talking pointedly about this 110th Psalm. Well, and the 110th Psalm... It seems seems unchristlike to me. Well, but this is a psalm of our age. This is a psalm of the kingdom that is ruled by the priest-king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But, of course, the judgment, as you know, I believe in our time frame, is past. The enemies of God were the leaders of Judah in the first century who rejected, vilified, and murdered the Son of God. Those are the enemies that he made into a footstool. And rule in the midst of your enemies. Well, his enemies were the Judeans there. And he's talking about the splendors of your saints. I mean, this is the bride in her splendor. The old bride, physical Israel, is going to be utterly and completely destroyed so that the new bride that we see at the end of Revelation, that's the splendor of your saints in the verse 3 of the 110th Psalm. 
And then he's dashed in pieces, kings, in the day of his wrath. See, I believe that day occurred in A.D. 70. He will judge among the nations. I believe he's doing that right now. The, the corpses are crushing the heads. You know, I don't think that's necessarily physically ongoing. But, again, he is providentially in control of, uh, of all of these things. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, he, he certainly doesn't tell us to take up hammers and guns and go out and, and do this literally. But this is speaking of the spiritual victories that we are supposed to be winning in the spiritual realm. I mean, you're a soldier. I mean, the whole we all these truths, we're fighting this battle, you know. So we're not trying to physically create corpses, but we are trying to wage war against this evil and corruption. And we, no, can we are, of course, tempt, we are tempted sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. But no, this is a good study, and it's a tough question to answer consistently throughout the whole Bible. I think I'm getting a little closer, but I'm not there yet. Thanks. Good discussion. <sighs> well, so, well, yeah, you know, it all boils down <laughs> to the sin nature of man, and of course, I think part of the problem, at least for me, is when you're trying to understand the infinite as in God. With a finite mind, there's a lot of spillage, and uh, I've got a lot of spillage there to uh, try to understand all this stuff. So, Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small think big, and press on towards the straight gate.